Welcome back to Tales of Southwest Michigan's Past. This is Michael Delaware. I am your host. And in today's journey through history, we're going to venture into a subject that I've mentioned a few times in the past two years on this podcast, but I haven't yet done an episode on it. And that is the subject of wildcat banking and the Panic of 1837 and what was going on in the country during that time, and this whole foundation and early years of the banking industry in Michigan, and Michigan particularly had a very difficult time between 1837 and the early 1840s, and they were hit hard economically, more so than other states in the Union during that time. So come along and join me. Let's venture into this fascinating topic from yesteryear. So in today's episode, I'm going to be referencing material written by Washington Gardner. He was a former congressman for Calhoun County in the 1900s, early 1900s, late 1800s. And he was a historian as well. And he wrote a book called History of Calhoun County, and it was published in 1913. And he has a section in this book, uh, which is a two-volume set, and it's um, a good account of the broad history of Calhoun County from his perspective in those days. And he has a chapter called Banks, Banking, and Bankers that covers a lot of the banking industry. And it also addresses a little bit of the Panic of 1837. And he begins by saying that banks are places where money is deposited for safekeeping and where loans for a consideration are made and among the most ancient institutions in which we have knowledge. The children of Israel, according to the book of Exodus 22-25, not only had banks, but indulged in exacting excessive interest. The money changers flourished in the time of our Savior, is what he writes. And so he goes on to describe that banking reached a high stage of development among the Greeks and the Romans, and bankers in Greece and Rome seem to have exercised nearly the same functions as those of present day, except that they didn't appear to be issuing any notes, which is what you see in present-day banking. They received money on deposit to be paid in demand by checks or orders at some stipulated period, sometimes paying interest for it and sometimes not. Their profits arose from their lending the balance of their disposal at higher rates of interest than they allowed to their own depositors. Among the ancients, as in our days, bankers were highly esteemed and great confidence was placed in their integrity. With the revival of civilization, banking reappeared as one of the business customs. The Bank of Venice is said to be among the greater banking institutions in all of Europe. Banking was not introduced into England until the 17th century. The Bank of England, which has long been the principal bank of deposit and circulation in England, and indeed in Europe, was founded in 1694. Among other things, under its charter, the corporation is prohibited from engaging in any sort of commercial undertaking other than dealing in bills of exchange and in gold and silver. 
Since 1833, the notes of the Bank of England are a legal tender everywhere in that country, except at the bank. The Bank of England does not allow either of its home office in London or any of its branches any interest on deposits. And then he goes into starting to describe the history of banking in the United States. In 1816, Congress passed an act authorizing the establishment of the Bank of the United States with a capital of $35 million divided into 350,000 shares of $100 each. 70,000 shares amounting to $7 million were subscribed and paid for by the United States government, and the remaining 280,000 shares remained to be subscribed for by individuals, companies, or corporations, with no individual company or corporation could subscribe to more than 3,000 shares. The subscribers to the stock were created a corporation and body politic by the name of the style of the president and directors of the company of the Bank of the United States. For the management of the affairs of the corporation, there were 25 directors. Five of them were appointed by the President of the United States by and with the advice and consent of the Senate. This bank, in the course of the years, became entangled in politics, and it was one of the storm centers of President Jackson's administration. And finally, on June 15, 1836, an act of Congress, in effect, repealed its charter. The government deposits were shortly after withdrawn and the Bank of the United States went out of existence. So this happened in 1836. So following that, we have the Panic of 1837, where there's a lot of uncertainty and lack of confidence that goes across the entire country. And it entered into a period of what was known as wildcat banking. Previous to the Civil War, it had been a uniform practice of the different states to allow banks to establish for the issue of notes payable in specie on demand. Now, specie is a form of coin payment, and the coins were typically silver or gold. So local legislatures in the various states began to set up systems where you could charter your own bank and issue notes and specie or coins. And charters were considerably numerous, and there became this wave of paper currency that was created at a great volume across the country. From 1811 to 1820, 195 banks in different states failed, and ruin and distress followed in their wake. Now, this was all previous to the Civil War, so the wildcat banking and the disastrous panic of 1837 were long remembered by the people of that day, according to Washington Gardner, while the historic recital of them seems almost incredible to the current generation. There was a number of causes that contributed to the universal wreckage in the country at large, and in particular in Michigan, which historians agree was the worst hit of any state in the Union. So when the National Bank was repealed by an act of Congress, people withdrew their deposits in the National Bank and started placing them in state banks that were chartered in their state. And Michigan began to see a need for banking, so they created this ability to charter your own bank. 
And Washington Gardner describes that legislatures and legislation partook of the prevailing spirit among the electors, and many schemes of internal improvements were devised, and some were possessing real merit, but mostly ahead of their times, and others were reckless and extravagant and inexcusable under any conditions. And these charters were all over the place in terms of their ability to organize and provide a currency, much less a sense of safety and honorability for people depositing their money. And he goes on to describe that Michigan had a most virulent case of this prevailing disease. In 1837, the legislature passed what was termed the General Banking Law. This declared the intent of the law to allow competition where it was charged there had been a monopoly enjoyed by a few individuals. The law allowed any 10 freeholders with a capital of not less than 50 nor more than $300,000 to associate themselves together and form a banking corporation. Scarcely had the act gone into effect when the Panic of 1837 burst across the country. Fifteen old banks, then doing business in the state, suspended specie payments. Though the legislature had called in special session, and though the governor had reviewed the situation with alarm, he did not recommend, nor did the legislature, acting on its own initiative to repeal the general banking law. The result was that while existing banks were in a state of suspension, new banks were being organized in every part of the state. Forty-nine banks were organized before the legislature on the 3rd of April, 1838, finally suspended the act. Doubtless, a good percentage of them were organized in good faith and with honest intent, but with others, the base deceptions resorted to the dishonest devices invented to mislead people and evade the plain provisions of the law and could leave no room to doubt that the purpose of their promoters was to be dishonest speculators, and they succeeded in fausting a million dollars of worthless currency upon the general public. Large sums were sent to these fake banks and into other states for circulation, which essentially you had all of these fake bills being printed by these banks and sent out in circulation, and they weren't backed by gold or silver, and they were backed by nothing. And so basically this sent prices down because it was a, um, a flood of bad currency. So commodities began to crash across the country. And following that, inflation. So you had this dip of the value of commodities, and suddenly you had this increasing inflation that started going out, out the roof because you had this surplus of money going in, so it was driving the values down a little bit. And then following that, you had this huge inflation because the money was basically worthless. So Washington Gardner continues, While at home there was a sharp decline in prices of every commodity, wheat, for example, dropped from $2.50 to $1 a bushel, other farm products in like proportion. Distrust seized upon the people. Every kind of business seemed paralyzed. All classes suffered. But laboring men and farmers particularly were made to feel the ill effects. The happy and deceitful illusion of manufacturing money with the printing press and creating prosperity by constantly depreciating currency, even to the point of worthlessness, followed the unusual fate of the overinflation. 
And he says that our older people still remember the days of wildcat banks and wildcat money as a delirious dream from which they awoke to a horrible reality. This was aggravated by the fanciful schemes of internal improvements recommended by the governor and undertaken by legislative enactments. The first constitution declared that internal improvements shall be encouraged by the government and to this end it shall be the duty of the legislature as soon as it may be to make a provision by law for the ascertaining the proper objects of improvement in relation to roads, canals, and navigable rivers. In obedience to this supreme mandate, the first session of the legislature, after its admission to the Union, provided for three lines of railroads extending across the state, for two canals connecting the eastern and western waters of the state, and the construction of a steamboat canal around the falls of the St. Mary's River at the Sioux to improve the Grand River from its mouth to the Lyons in Ionia County, and to build a canal with locks around the rapids of of what is now Grand Rapids and the improvement of the Kalamazoo River from the mouth of the Kalamazoo to the St. Joseph River. And the St. Joseph River was to be improved from its mouth to Union City to Branch County. Even surveys were made to make these canals possible. So essentially what happened, the state got all of this money in from taxes and it was just inflation of uh, a money, amount of money in, so they planned all of these massive improvements across the state. But what followed was the collapse of the value because it was a speculative bubble burst, as Washington describes here. And in addition to the enterprise entered upon the state, there were not less than 24 railroads and navigation companies projecting lines in all directions and designed to connect every village of any consequence with the main system. So you had the railroad companies planning all of these routes and railroads, and you had the state government planning their own railroads, as well as an intricate canal system across the state because of all this money that suddenly showed up. And then it all basically fell apart. And from 1837 to 1840, the panic of of that year that started in 1837. It lasted seven years, and it created this stagnant period of time in Michigan for infrastructure development. And a lot of these projects, as we know today, never got put into existence because of this wildcat banking era that was brought about by the Panic of 1837 and largely started from the Andrew Jackson administration. And the difficulty was is that it was at the tail end of the Andrew Jackson administration when this happened. And then Martin Van Buren, who became the eighth president, continued in his successor's policies. And so he inherited the Panic of 1837 in his administration, and it took probably the first two years of administration before there was any marginal sense of improvement across the country. And mainly because he considered that he was going to follow in the footsteps of his predecessor. He was in the same party and he had been Andrew Jackson's vice president. So Washington Gardner describes that under the existing conditions of that period of wildcat banking, it was in perfect harmony with the times and public and private credit sank to its lowest ebb. Recovery from this was slow and tedious, and 
There was some compensation, however, in the fact that the general government, the state legislatures and private corporations, and the banks and the public at large had each and all learned lessons not soon to be forgotten. And so he continues to describe that the Civil War, which was over by 1865, one of the incidents of the Civil War was the establishment of a national currency. Congress not only provided for the currency, but it passed an act to secure such by the pledge of the United States stocks and to provide for its circulation and redemption. In the midst of a financial stress during the terrific conflict, Congress assumed to give corporate powers not to one bank, as had been done earlier in the century, but to many. Indeed, national banks were established in every part of the country sufficient to meet the demands of business. And so that's where we have this change in the banking system, which carries on to today. So in 1913, when Washington Gardner wrote this book, he then went into the individual banks that were in Calhoun County that were part of this national banking system. And there was the old National Bank of Battle Creek, which was started in 1851. And it was a private bank by Loyal C. Kellogg, and he describes all the shareholders and board members. And then it became known as the First National Bank of Battle Creek in 1865. And then other banks that existed around the county was the First National Bank of Marshall, which was established in August of 1865 by Charles T. Gorman. And I did a whole podcast episode on Charles T. Gorman uh, in an earlier episode this year, and he's a fascinating man. And then there was the Central National Bank of Battle Creek, which commenced operations in November of 1903, and that was brought about by Edward C. Hinman, who was the first president of it, as well as uh, several other businessmen in the area. Carol Post, who was the brother of C.W. Post, was one of the members of the early board of directors that founded the bank. And then there was the City Bank of Battle Creek, which was organized in 1871. And that was created by the original incorporators, which was Richmond Kingman, Alonzo Noble, and Benjamin Graves, as well as Victor Collier. These are all names that are pretty well known if you dig into the history of Battle Creek. Nelson Eldred, Elijah Pendle, who was one of the early mayors of Battle Creek, Clement Wakeley. Uh, I recognize a lot of these names because I've done a lot of study of the early history during this period, and I see these names come up. Many of them were businessmen or uh, merchants in the area. Some of them were attorneys. Benjamin Graves had been a judge who went on to serve on the Michigan Supreme Court, and he was a uh, an attorney here in Battle Creek before he went on to serve in the Michigan Supreme Court. Then there, over in Albion, there was the Commercial and Savings Bank of Albion that was founded in 1893, and that was organized in September of that year. There was also the Merchant Savings Bank of Battle Creek that was organized in March of 1895, and the first president there was Frank Turner. And then moving back to Albion, there was the Albion State Bank, which was organized in March of 1895, and some of the players involved with that was Eugene Robinson, W.S. Kessler, and Seth Heine. 
And then there was the first state bank of Tecancha, which was organized in 1877 by an organization called Allen and Johnson, and it was incorporated as a state bank in 1902 under the name of First State Bank. And then finally, there was the Athens State Bank, which was organized in January of 1911. It was created out of two other banks, the Farmers State Bank and the Athens State Savings Bank, which were both in the village of Athens, and they merged their interests together to form the Athens State Bank. And some of the original officers were Frank Woodruff, George Brokow, and Frank Estes. So that was all that Washington Gardner wrote about that period. It was very interesting because there was their own currency being created by a lot of these banks. There was even one that was created by Sands McCamley, who founded Battle Creek. And I met with a collector who actually had a copy of one of those original notes. So that is definitely a very rare item. But let's talk about the Panic of 1837, because this was one of the earliest financial crises in the United States. And it touched off a major depression, which lasted until the mid-1840s. Profits, prices, and wages dropped. Uh, Westward expansion in the United States was stalled. Unemployment rose and pessimism abounded across the country. And the panic had both domestic and foreign origins. Uh, Speculative lending practices in the West, as well as a sharp decline in cotton prices and a collapsing land bubble, international specie flows and restrictive lending policies in Britain also factored into the whole problem. And there was this lack of a central bank to regulate fiscal manners. And when Andrew Jackson tried to ensure that with the bank and became more political with the banking institution, this is when you have this run of investors that started pulling their money out. And so it created this whole condition called the Panic of 1837. And this bank run that ensued gave the crisis its name because it's how they came up with Panic of 1837. The run itself where people were pulling their money out of the banks came to a head in May of 1837 when the banks in New York City ran out of gold and silver. And at least during that time, notes of currency were backed by gold and silver. The banks held the gold and silver and issued notes. In present day, since the Nixon administration, the United States currency has been taken off the gold standard, which is partly due to why we see inflation today at such high levels, because there is no regulation of that this $1 has to equal a certain amount of gold and silver in the bank. And that that hasn't been that way for a very long time now in the United States. So Different administrations will just print money, and all that does is throw a lot more useless currency out into the world from the United States, and it waters down the amount of value of an individual dollar. So if you want to take a look at why current why inflation happens, just look at spending in Washington. Uh, most of that spending is not being drawn from existing money. It's either being borrowed or it's being printed. And so they just open up the printing presses and print $50 million or $50 billion, and they send it to whatever project or thing that they are trying to do. And and then the currency becomes more devaluated because it doesn't represent something like it used to represent gold or silver. 
the word currency comes from the word current, which means a river, and it flows. Before currency came along, there was a barter system, and you had the value of something like eggs, for example. Eggs were something that somebody would take eggs and they would trade it for lumber. So they'd say, okay, two dozen eggs equals two boards of lumber. And they would say, okay, that's a deal. I'll give you two dozen eggs and you give me two boards of lumber. And I'll keep bringing you eggs every week and you keep giving me more lumber and I can build my barn and you can have eggs to feed your family. And then somebody comes along and says, well, a bushel of wheat should be equal to two dozen eggs. And they say, great. And so after a while, the barter system becomes very clumsy when you're trying to get groceries because it takes so much time. So we're going to say this piece of paper is $1, and it represents the value of two dozen eggs, as well as two full boards of wood, as well as one bushel of wheat. And we will all agree to accept this paper in lieu of the physical item that makes it a little bit easier for transporting goods between individual merchants. But all of these people in this village could only produce so much. They could only produce so many eggs and so many boards of wood and so many bushels of wheat. And then someone comes along and says, you know what, I'm going to print more money so that I can have more eggs and more wood than somebody else. But what ends up happening is suddenly there's more currency than there's actual goods. And then you have this condition where, say, a dozen eggs is now $2 to balance out everything, and it two boards of wood equals $2, and a bushel of wheat equals $2. And all we've done is increase the currency, but we haven't increased the commodity or the production of that commodity. I once visited Germany during the time when it was formerly East Germany and that part of the country. Germany had gone through this on the eastern side when it used to be East and West Germany. And I went over there for business right after the wall came down, about probably about 15 months after the wall went down. It was about a little less than a year and a half. And met with a lot of the Germans and got to know them. I mean, we'd have a translator there, but we spent a couple of weeks there talking to them and We'd sit in their houses, and we were trying to set up business arrangements, you know, and um, they were manufacturers of glass, and we were selling glass in our store, so we were working out um, deals with different artists to bring some of their products to the United States and shipping and coordinating with that. And so we met with a lot of individual artists within this community that all produced glass products, and that's a whole story into itself. But anyways, they showed one of the gentlemen that I met and he's probably long since passed away. His name was T.O. Boom, and he took a liking to me. He was an older gentleman who had this big glass kiln that he built right off of his living room. He's a fascinating individual, and I still have some of his products that I took home from that visit that he gave me, and there's a couple pieces that I bought from him. And he told me, you know, he tried to explain what currency was like. And this is one of the things I found very interesting when I dealt with a lot of these Germans is a lot of them were coin collectors. And so they knew a lot about currency. And he handed me this German note that was a $1 million note. And he said it was worth about a dollar <laughs> during its time. And that's just kind of an example 
and um, of what this hyperinflation was. He said the gov German government just kept reprinting money and printing money all the time to the point where a million dollars equaled this two dozen egg example that I gave you. You know, so you go to, to the grocery store and you're handling out two million dollar German Deutschmarks, East German Deutschmarks, um, to purchase groceries, you know. You keep adding the, the numbers to this thing, but it doesn't increase the value unless there's an, an increase in production. Um, so that's kind of a long about example of explaining the inflation that happened in the Panic of 1837 when we look at that point of history. And the same thing's happening today in our economy, and it's happening on both sides of the aisle, so I don't really want to get political about it. Just stand back and look at what Washington does over the past 50 years, and you see that both parties have been part of this sort of thing every time they pass an omnibus bill um, of all this spending. Well, where do you think that money comes from? It's not been spent from increased production and prosperity. It's been created by printed money. And that's why you go, when you travel abroad, you see this because you will see $10,000 uh, marks and $10,000 lira over in, I think that's over in Italy. And so the, the, you look at all these things in uh, the yen, and, and, and they're all the numbers are really weird. You go, why is this thing 10,000? Why isn't it just 10? You know, why isn't it five? Why they, are they not small like in the United States? Well, it's because of hyperinflation and printing of money. You see the same thing down in uh, South America. I traveled to Mexico, and they have these uh, 10 and $20,000 notes. And you think, oh, well, I'm rich, and it's only worth a couple of dollars American. You know, it's just ridiculous, depending on the exchange so go ahead and look up exchanges when you ever get a chance. It's really fascinating to look at that the denominations in different countries have changed because of how the different countries have been managed. The United States is no exception. I mean, the value of the dollar today is a lot less than it was. I think it's probably worth 25 cents what it was way back in the 1940s, you know. Um, this is an interesting chapter in history of Michigan history with this wildcat banking period that happened. And the country did eventually recover and they instituted the national currency eventually, and they instituted more national banks that were organized under a better system. But there's always that temptation for politicians and people that don't really understand economics to go ahead and print money as a solution to try to fund something, when ultimately all it does is increase inflation. And um, I think we're experiencing a lot of that going on right now in the U.S. And hopefully we'll see an era of deflation at some point in the future where production catches up to what the currency should be. But uh, that's just a, a little journey through history here. And uh, Washington Gardner was a fascinating writer to read some of his historical accounts of the period here in Calhoun County. He was a very fascinating man, and as were many of the politicians of that era. They're all fascinating to read from their different perspectives. And at the Battle Creek Regional History Museum, we put his portrait on one of the walls of that new room that we created there in the History Education Center. So that's going to conclude today's journey through history, looking at the era of wildcat banking and the Panic of 1837 and its impact on Michigan. If you enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to leave a rating or review on whatever app that you are listening on. It's always very helpful. And be sure to go over to my Facebook page, Michael Delaware Author, and hit the like button or follow on there. I will be releasing a new book 
in the first quarter of 2024, and I would love to be able to make the announcement on there to a very large audience of my listeners. So if you explore Facebook, please go on over there and hit the like button and follow that page. And if you'd like to reach out to me, you can find me at michaeldelaware.com. I'm always happy to hear from my listeners. And until next time, when we take another journey into yesterday and explore even more fascinating tales of Southwest Michigan's past, thank you for listening. <laughs>